Welcome to the High Tech Freedom Podcast. This is a podcast where we bring successful tech sales professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs to share best practices, insights, and lessons learned with other tech sales professionals. As a sales professional, the more we learn, the more we earn. Once we earn it, how can we put those hard-earned commission dollars back to work to build additional income streams that will create the freedom we are all working to achieve? I'm your host, Chris Freeman. I'm a high-tech sales leader, real estate investor, and lifetime learner. Welcome back to the High Tech Freedom Sales Podcast. So my guest today, Mark Stuse, is the CEO of Proof Analytics. And they're a sales and marketing analytics platform that really helps CMOs, CFOs bridge the ROI gap I'm providing you know, cause and effect analysis that shows marketing and sales, ultimately their true business impact and financial worth. Now, Mark has had senior C-level roles in some very large companies like BMC Software, Honeywell, and HP. And I'm really excited to bring Mark on today because if you are in sales, which you probably are if you're listening, most of you have probably had your manager talk to you about the importance of tying what you sell to solving business problems, business pain, financial impact, right? Saving money, making money, gaining a competitive advantage. And this is what Mark thinks about and does day in and day out. So it's really foundational ultimately to what his company does. So I'm really, I think you're going to get a ton of value out of the discussion today. Mark, welcome to the High Tech Freedom Sales Podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Great to be here. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we um, start? I, I mentioned a few of the companies you worked at, but why don't we talk a little bit about your journey into your current CEO role? I would say that from a marketing perspective, I, for, for years, until about 20 years ago, I was a classic marketer, right? I was, I was maybe even the marketer that most salespeople love to hate, right? And, and I was working for Mark Hurd, the late CEO of Oracle when he was at HP, right? And Mark was a sales guy's sales guy. And he, you know, very operational, very had a strong aversion to bullshit, right? And he would get in my face and other people's face on a fairly regular basis about marketing. And marketing impact and what does it all mean and you know all this kind of stuff and so i kind of got into this existential place where i was either going to make a change and do something to fix this you know or i was going to get out and i was going to do something totally different right because marketing is a great profession what makes it suck in almost every business is this whole issue around well, what's your real value? Right. Right. One of the ironies of this whole thing, right, is that actually marketing is a nonlinear multiplier of business performance in, in otherwise linear functions. So sales is a linear function, right? So it's all about leverage. So actually, one of the, one, I mean, marketing is one of those areas where it should be among the last to have to justify anything because their investments pay off in so many different directions at the same time. But they can't prove that. They can't show that. They can't optimize for that, right? And so 
you can be doing it all day long. And if you can't prove it, you get no credit for it. Right. And, and that's kind of been the problem. So I started, I got reacquainted with basic high school and college math, you know, multivariable regression, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I started originally as the Lone Ranger. I mean, I was like literally doing it all myself. You know, this is like 20 years ago. And I started grinding it out. And it started to make a difference. And so we just kept on building it out and building it out and building it out, scaling it. Right. And I got money for some data science guys, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And then I went to BMC and then I went to Honeywell and Honeywell was sort of like the, the massive scale, high complexity company that where we just rolled out the system pervasively in Honeywell Aerospace, uh, which is what at the time was about 12 billion in revenue. And it was one of those things where it was so successful but you then realize that you thought you were trying to solve a series that, you know, you thought you knew the problems you were trying to solve. And then you realize that there's a whole bunch of real challenges underneath those that are kind of like the real issues. And one of those is producing, operationalizing analytics at the clock speed of the business so that all the insights are arriving at the right time for people to use them to make better and better and better decisions. That's really what it comes down to, right? So we did it at Honeywell by brute force. So I was spending about nine or $10 million a year. And most of that went to data science guys. So we just overhired in order to get our latency down fast enough where it was, we were, able to be relevant to what was going on. But you didn't have to be a rocket scientist, and I'm certainly not, to, to realize that automation, this was an automation play we're waiting to happen. And so we, a bunch of us got together and we started to outline proof. Um, and we ultimately built the platform and proof is designed to not only automate a lot of the analytical functions that are all about causal, you know, ca uh, causal relationships, right? Cause and effect. But also it has a front end on it that makes all of that very understandable to normal people, which is the other key part, right? It, I mean, that's the problem in data science today is if you expose so-called normal people, right, to data science output, they're all going to look at you like, what the hell is that? And what am I supposed to do with it? Right. It's like Greek. Right. So that clearly wasn't going to work. Right. So we had to come up with a, a different approach. Right. And uh, today, proof really operates like a GPS or go to market or for business in general. Right. You, you set, you, just like the GPS on your phone, it says, hey, this is where I am right now. This is where I want to go. Gives you a number of forecasts that are dependent on different variables. You pick the one that's closest to your situation. And then you basically say, hey, you know, we're going to, it's going to track your performance. It's going to track all these externalities. 
that are impacting your performance. So this is where it's super important to a sales guy. And then it's going to say, okay, you know what? This is now your forecast and your actuals are getting too far apart. So we need to reroute, right? We need to adjust. And it allows you right there on the screen to play around, create different scenarios that respond to the changing conditions and move on, right? So this is really super important because one of the things that most people on marketing and sales and business don't get, right, is that marketing and sales create value asynchronously in time and space. So what that in simple what in simple terms, what that means is sales performance in Q2 and marketing performance in Q2 have nothing to do with each other at all in most companies, right? Sales performance in Q2 was impacted primarily by marketing investments that were made up to a year before. So if you don't understand that and you're not calibrating for that, you've got a you've got a problem. And and so that's one of the things that proof really helps bring clarity to. Well, so where does AI now play into what you do? So AI, all the hype aside, right? AI is is really important. It is, I mean, we're just seeing the the earliest manifestations of it. But it's a big data solution. And most businesses don't have a lot of big data. They have a lot of lean data. They may even have a lot of data, but they don't have a lot of big data. So you probably have heard about training data, the importance of training data. That's the big data that we're talking about. And if you don't have a lot of big data, then you don't have the training data. So you can, it's sort of like you can have the F-35 fighter plane, but if you don't have the right jet fuel, if you try to put 93 octane into the, the joint strike fighter, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work, right? That is a key limitation to AI right now that won't always be a limitation, but right now it definitely is. The reason why Gen AI, generative AI, so this is you know all the stuff that's been so popularized recently, the reason why that works really well is that it's sourcing its big data from the internet. But as soon as you create a private chat GPT, Right, where you're not sucking on the internet anymore, you're only sucking on your data, then all of a sudden it doesn't work nearly as well. Right. And so that is that's some of the limitations on it. From a sales perspective, I think that one of the coolest things I've seen is there's an app, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's an app that basically will generate an entire sales plan for a client based on all the available information out there on the internet, it'll do it in like less than 60 seconds, right? And it's generally pretty high quality stuff. So that's happening. The thing that a lot of sales guys won't like, and I, as an investor, I've seen two of these so far uh, in investor demos, are buyer apps, right? Where essentially... A, an organization, let's say it's a, a marketing organization that wants to buy some stuff, some software, and finance has an interest, and procurement has an interest, and IT has an interest. 
they can all collaborate in this in the context of this app with prompts, right? Specifying their, you know, their must-haves, right? And it will go out there and it will make a recommendation on which one they should buy. Oh, wow. Right. And it is going to revolutionize the journey massively in so many different ways. For one, touch-based attribution is going to go bye-bye because these apps leave no discernible touches. What do you mean by that? So right now, marketers have tended to say, well, I can see a customer hit each page of our website, or I can see them over here, and I can see them access our content over here. Engagement, yeah. Engagement, I can kind of see the journey that they're on. This is going to make that journey completely opaque. Wow. Okay. Right. And so the sales guy will be engaged towards the end of the journey by customers using these buyer apps. And it will be almost a more of a formality in terms of, hey, we need to actually talk to somebody to actually complete this deal. There won't be as much or, or it'll be a different kind of selling at that point than has traditionally been the case. So what and, I hear you when saying... I saw these, when I saw yeah. these apps demoed, I was just like floored. I mean, I was just like, crap, right? I mean, it, it, it's actually really cool and really scary all at the same time, right? Yeah. Well, Mark, you're making me nervous as a salesperson. So, okay, so if that's the case, and you know, it, it, all this stuff takes a little bit of time to come out, but as we've all seen, things are happening in a much more compressed fashion. So let's just say that's going to be reality. Um, the the companies are going to have, you know, they have their products or their solutions. I imagine they're going to have to have, they're going to have to be much more intentful around how they get that information out there. So those AI type of tools can be digesting it, right? I mean, you really have oh, yeah, to... No, it's going to change the arms race, right, on content dramatically, right? Because you're going to be playing... It's going to be almost like retail shelf space, the war for shelf space. It's like how much of your content relative to your competitor's content is going to be utilized by these buyer apps, and now you're talking about not just content that positions you and your product optimally. You're also talking about the creation of content that depositions your competitors. So then there's going to have to be, as far as I'm concerned, there's a, going to have to be some way of differentiating qualities of content. Right. Like, is it purely AI written content, you know, as opposed to more human related? Is this a volume play where the company's just trying to swamp the Internet, so to speak? Uh, in which case, I think that it only makes sense that they that their content gets deprecated to some degree. Otherwise, the whole thing just breaks, right? I mean, you just can't. I mean, there's a there is a point at which, if left ungoverned, the whole system just falls down of its own weight. Yeah, but if you're in the sales profession, 
what are some things that a rep could be doing? Knowing, let's say that is coming at some point, how could a rep start behaving differently to maybe just better set themselves up for that, you know, sort of an eventual change in engagement and how the sales process works? You know, I think that particularly if you have any, if your objective is to rise in the organization and become a CRO or maybe even a CEO, you've got to start having business level conversations that are certainly about sales, but totally through the lens of the business. So you've got to be able to say, hey, like on the topic we were just talking about, hey, I'm hearing about these buyer apps. This is some of the early feedback on what this is likely to mean. Uh, Clearly, this has implications for the sales organization. But as all of us know, anything that has major implications for the sales organization has major implications for the business. So what are we going to do as a business, not as a sales team, right? But as a business to deal with this effectively, how are we going to get ahead of it? What are we going to do about it? Right. I think that that kind of stuff is also what every business leader that I've ever worked for longs to see from people down in the organization is that kind of initiative. And particularly when it's backed up by really cogent thought processes and observations, that's what starts to mark you out as somebody that they can promote. And that maybe even ultimately you you are bigger than sales, right? You know, and you see this not in B2B, right? I mean, a lot, most CEOs, right, uh, that are not founders are sales guys that became CEOs. Right. Yeah. I've worked for uh, one in the past. It was a, he was a great CEO. Well, so Mark, um, on, on the topic of promotion and career progression, you've done really well in your career, multiple C-level type roles, CRO, CMO, now CEO. Let's say it's an early career rep person working. What advice might you give them to kind of set themselves up for a long-term career success? Well, so first and foremost, at that level, you've got to make your number. Right. I mean, that that's sort of like a binary thing. And if you can't make your number, no one's going to listen to you. It's not fair. Okay. But it's just real. Mm-hmm. You got you to you master the blocking and tackling of great sales. However, I would say also that we are living through a period of massive change, high velocity, high volatility change. And so the way things have always been done is sort of like a curse today. Like you should be actively rethinking in an intelligent way, right? You should be actively rethinking the way you do things. And you should be using your customers as a massive feedback loop, a high value feedback loop to guide you in making those changes. I mean, one of the coolest things about being a sales guy is that you have that kind of feedback loop. Right? So use it. Actually, you are by far the closest to the customer pre-deal. And even after the deal's closed, I would make customer success your best friend because they're going to continue to funnel 
great intelligence, great observations to you about your customer. I would also stay in relationship with your customer directly too, and and just kind of use triangulate what you're hearing. I think that as you, so this is true for any profession, right? I mean, at every step, you are building the credibility necessary to take the next step. And I think it's also really important to know that whatever is is making you successful today is very unlikely to be the thing that makes you successful in five years. In fact, it could probably hinder you if you continue to do it the same way. Could be. Yeah, it could. You know, I mean, this is one of the reasons why people flatline, you know, and, and kind of get pigeonholed is that they become really, really valuable as long as nothing really changes appreciably. They become so valuable as someone who turns the crank over and over again successfully that no one wants to, their leadership doesn't want to lose that. And they also don't believe that they could really do the next level well. And so they get frozen in place, right? And that's that's just death, man. It's just in so many ways, it's it's just not good. Before we jump into the topic, I wanted to let you know that we just launched a monthly drawing for one of our insulated high-tech freedom tumblers. Now, I've been sending these out as a thank you gift to each of our guests, and the response has been great. You know, everyone has a full-size coffee cup, a Yeti, or whatever brand that they might use, but not everybody has the small tumbler that you can put your wine or beverage of choice in. And they're great for the deck, beach, camping, or just, you know, just keeping your drink warm or cold. Now, I'm not selling these, but I am excited about them. So we decided to offer these up to the loyal podcast listeners by doing a monthly drawing. So if you're interested, go to hightechfreedom.com forward slash mug, that's M-U-G, and you'll see a picture of the Tumblr and you can enter. We'll just collect your name, phone number, and email. And if you do win, we'll then follow up and ask for your mailing address so we know where to send it. If you don't win, your name stays in so you don't need to re-enter. just want to go back to a point that you just made there a couple minutes ago. So I did an episode, a solo episode about a month ago on innovating in sales, because I truly believe that you know the risk for any sales rep is to get in a rut and just keep doing things the same way. Because you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you could kind of keep doing it the same way and be really successful and change is a little bit slower. But the reality, you just gave so many examples of how fast things are changing and the uncertainty. And you know, you're coming at it from the lens of a, a vendor that has, you know, some software and does some pretty incredible things. But if we put our shoes in the customer, their business is going through the exact same thing. They're trying to figure out how they go be successful. So trying to sell to a company that's constantly in this dynamic flux of their own innovation, man, if you're just sitting with a normal do it as you've always done it type of approach, yeah, you might, you might hit a roadblock. Flip it around, right? If you are constantly trying to tweak and it, hey if it's not successful no big deal you know if you weren't selling anything anyways just you tweak it again and and try it you've got nothing to lose but as you start to take some of those innovative ideas some of them work you then most importantly share that back to the business you're going to quickly elevate yourself up the ranks because i can't tell you how many companies i've worked at where 
upper management, they don't really know what to do. I mean, they're trying something and they're looking to the field and most great new innovative ideas ultimately came from the field that some other VP did a fantastic job on taking it, operationalizing it, and then getting everybody else excited about it. So that's there's so much opportunity there for those reps that can grab that, as they say, the bull by the horn and you know come up with a great idea and run with it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that that one of the great challenges of being at the top of an organization is while you have a much greater field of view, you also lack definition on the ground. And if you're not constantly dropping down to ground level and talking to people at ground level, to find out what's really going on relative to what you think is going on way up here, you're going to have a problem. You're going to get isolated, right? I think that the other thing that I don't, I wanted to say about what you just said, because I really thought it was a great comment, is too often sales guys, and for that matter, all of us inside of a, of a corporation or, that are trying to sell our agenda, right? Are they, we see sales as us prevailing over our audience. And so what we're really saying there is we're going to force you into our mold. And that's how we're going to define win-loss here is whether you complied with our agenda, right? When the real opportunity is to say, you know what, I'm here to help them achieve their agenda and I'm going to be whatever they need me to be in order to generate the value necessary to win the deal. And I think that that's really key. That's servant leadership, you know, unfortunately not practiced nearly as much as it's discussed, right? But that's what that is. When you think about it, right? I mean, just look at practical or real world examples. You see that all the time with, you know, similar to your company, right? Smaller startup companies, they do that really well, partly out of necessity, but, you know, they're feeling out their market. They think they have a great idea. They think they have a great product or solution. As they start to go to market, they start to hear things from their clients. They start to see what it'll take and then they adapt, they adjust, they meet their customer where that customer wants to be at. The flip side, right? You worked at some really big companies. Those big companies, man, they're just, they have a hard time moving that fast and being that nimble because it takes so long for that data to trickle up and then kind of have some executive that believes that they need to make that change. Um, Some do it well, but. And that's actually one of the biggest issues, right? It's not, I'm, I'm not saying that all of these large corporate leaders are bad leaders, right? But they they have gotten into a model of matrix decision-making. And matrix decision-making is all about the diffusion of risk. It basically says, hey, if this goes wrong, there's a lot of other people who are also wrong, not just me. And so there won't be any fingers being pointed at me because I could just as easily point them back at the other guy, right? Which is actually kind of like a really, it's one of those things that sounds good on paper and it's really crap, right? But particularly in a time in which we are moving right now where decisiveness and accuracy 
good decision-making made decisively, right? It's so important. You cannot wait around right now. If you wait and you try and kind of do this very methodical, you know, incremental approach, non-revolutionary approach, right? You're going to not succeed right now. That means that the risk levels, you know, it's more, you really have got to get it right. This is where the analytics really become super, super important. Because if you're just doing this based on your legacy experience, I got a newsflash, past is not prologue, right? And in fact, in periods of high change, your experience historically is very likely to be unhelpful. So it's sort of like, you know, a sales forecast, right? A real forecast. That's what you're focused on. You're not really focused so much on the history, even though the two are linked, you know? And so that's, I think, really super important at every level of the organization. The challenge is when you're down low, if your manager isn't open to this, then you're going to have to do it very, very quietly and do it for your own benefit and let the results speak for themselves. You're not going to be able to be a thought leader initially is what I'm trying to say, right? You're just going to work it out. Yeah. And that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Mark, um, as we get closer to wrapping it up, you know, if you think back uh, over your time uh, in your different roles, any mistakes that you've made that in the kind of the benefit of hindsight that uh, you might want to pass along so somebody else can avoid them? Oh man. I mean, it's, you want to talk about a litany. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, I think that not understanding what the real game is that you're playing is the mistake that most people make. They think they know the answer, but they're wrong. And so I would, I would say that take the time, have the conversations with people in the business, not necessarily just in sales to find out what the real game is that's being played. If you work for a public company that does quarterly reports, read those reports, see what they're actually saying, because they will be tra transmitting a lot of insight into what the real game is that they're playing. So for example, at BMC, while I was there, the vast majority of the revenue, low margin though it was, right? came from the mainframe business. So much so that also the the it was almost like an annuity. In fact, it was like an annuity. Like probably 65 to 70% of the next year's income was already set. But in order to drive high EPS, which was really our stock story was a high EPS number, we had to to sell very profitably our distributed products, right? So this is what we think of today as typical decentralized computing, right? Not nearly as much as mainframe by top line, but the profitability was off the charts. So it was about how do we piece this together into a compelling story? And if you as a sales guy don't understand that that's really what's going on and that's what the, what's, that's the game that's being played, then that's going to limit your effectiveness. 
I think that you, as, as a people manager, what I have learned is that first three months, tell the story. Is not going to typically get any better after three months. So even though it is very unfun, we will move people out after three months if the first three months were not a raging success. So how do you define a raging success in, in the first three months? Um, I think that for, and this is where startup sales is, or even scale-up sales is different than large enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have time to wait around for somebody to make a number. Like, it's okay if you don't make the number in the first two months, but in the third month, you'd better be making your number. Mm-hmm. And that's just a that's a that's just a stone cold fact of life. That's a law of gravity. It's we can shake our fist at it all day long and say how unfair that is and doesn't change the reality of the situation. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you have to, you have to realize that, that particularly by the time that people have been in their career, 10 or 15, 20 years, they should know it and they should be able to transfer the skill sets almost on demand because it's not about their Rolodex. It's about their ability to sell. Yeah. Right. And so I, I just, I think that that's just the stone cold truth. I used to take too long. Yeah. To, you mean to take action? Yeah. Yeah. I give people too much time. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a hard situation to deal with. You know, and I think back, uh, you know, I, I was talking to some people that were, they're early in their sales career. And I, I, I have one friend that I know that working for a big company and one that's working for a startup. And the one that's working for a startup, he is really struggling because he doesn't have the foundation to work from there because they don't have time to train him on how to sell. Right. And, you know, he was a cheap hire, but he's, he doesn't have the tool set yet. Whereas my other friend, he's going through all these training programs. I mean, it's like a three month boot camp before he ever hits the field. And granted, he's starting off as an SDR where the other one's actually getting a little bit of field time. But I think you take the the one that started with the big company, when he makes that transition to that startup, he's going to have that foundation to work from. So I just bring that up because I think sometimes people get allured by the idea of a startup and hitting it big or whatever it might be. But you have to know where you're at in your skill set and be able to self-assess. Can I jump in and truly execute? Or maybe it's not quite right for me. Let me go get some of those skill sets and then come come back and execute. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think also the so you can go to the big company and get a lot of the skills, but you also have to be the kind of person who can leave a big company and all the support systems that oh, yeah. that and still operate. Right. And that's again, not everybody. So a lot of this is actually everybody being super honest with themselves. Right. Self-knowledge is a wonderful thing, right? Being able to say, you know what? Even though I would love to do that kind of job in a startup, it's not where I am right now. And exercising the judgment to maybe just postpone it and make sure you get the skills or the mentality that will enable you to do it later. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that is, that's really, really key because in a scale up, not only does cash flow and deal flow and cash flow really, really matter. Okay. Like in terms of staying alive, it matters, but it's the only, it's the sole driver ultimately of valuation and the likelihood of exit and all that kind of stuff. Right. There's a point at which you've built the product, the product is cool, the product is validated, and everything past that point is all about multiples on revenue, right? So the sales team becomes hugely important. And I mean, just transparently, the amount of lost time that we have probably cost ourselves through bad sales hires is non-trivial. And, and I, I, and I go through, I, whenever I, I uh, am involved in a sales hire, I do it with great trepidation because I mean, you, you don't really know until you see it. Yeah. Because just because they were successful in their last Two companies does not necessarily mean they're going to be successful in their next one, right? Yeah, you know, and it, uh, you know, salespeople are great interviewers as well, right? I mean, they're great oh, storytellers. That's yeah. what they do. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. well, well. So, Mark, if I just you know think back to what you just said, you, know, I, I just actually uh, the episode that I had last week, a solo episode, it was a topic on taking extreme ownership in sales. And, you know, I've always believed that, you know, if you treat your business as your own franchise, you've got your own business, you own everything that you do, you own your contacts, you own your database. You know, if you kind of have that mindset, you can take that franchise and move it somewhere else. Now, somebody's not going to hire you for the contacts, but what I mean by that is you've got your defined sales price. You're not relying on the company for their sales process. You have your own, you've documented it. And I really promote having your own CRM. It, you can for eight dollars a month, you can go get a CRM and have all your contacts in there, and all that hard work of data collection over time, the personal data points, it's all there. It allows you to move, ramp, and scale quickly, especially if you're at a startup where you don't have time to go figure it out. You know, you need to be ready to go day one. And I, I fully subscribe to that same perspective, and I think that increasingly what we're seeing is that. Like, I think if we fast forward five to 10 years, the vast majority of people, even within a large company, are going to be contractors. And so that fully supports, in some very powerful and practical ways, the idea that you're really already running your own business and you're effectively entrepreneurial. And I think that that is, there, it's also true that there's that perspective will never see wrong, right? I mean, extreme ownership, being an entrepreneur, being entrepreneurially minded, knowing the real game that's being played, all this kind of stuff is what separates you from employees. And I think that, that it's, it's what's already happening here is that. So this specifically hasn't happened yet, but I think it will happen soon. It's already, we're seeing the precursors to this already. 
where in five years, six years, one of the worst things that anyone can ever call you is an employee, right? The mind, it's a, it'll be almost like a derogatory about your mindset. And it's just not, it's, it's not where it's all headed. Yeah. So fascinating. Mark, I could talk to you for hours. I've learned so much and you're, you kind of blown my mind on a couple different topics that uh, my head's spinning right now, but uh, we got to wrap it up. So Mark, you love what you're doing with Proof Analytics and, and some of the things that you're working on. And when you do get your book done and published, please let me know. I'd love to have you come back on and chat a little bit about it. If someone would like to reach out to you, what's the best way to connect up? So by far, the best way is on LinkedIn, right? Uh, so I'm pretty heavy on LinkedIn. You, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not hard to find. You can either DM me or you, you can respond, you know, beneath a, a, my post or someone else's post that I'm participating in and just say, Hey, you know, saw you on the podcast, would love to talk, right? I'm, I will always respond. You know, my role as CEO on LinkedIn is really BD. So I don't sell because I, I figured out that if I sell on LinkedIn, I can't help people on LinkedIn because everybody's guard goes up. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just, I'm there to help. And it, to the extent that that converts into a business development opportunity, right. If I'm like a super SDR of some sort, that's awesome. Right. And that does happen a lot, but I'm I'm not ever going to pursue somebody. I'm not going to, you're not, you're never going to get a series of obnoxious sales emails from me through LinkedIn. Just doesn't happen. Right. So feel free to reach out knowing that whatever it is, is going to be respected. And I'm going to respond as you would hope I would respond, which I, I also would tell you that as a, as a sales guy, that's a key lesson. Right. It's sort of like, I mean, don't be the sales guy that is like the guy who chases all of these girls constantly. And everybody knows that all he really wants is a girlfriend and he doesn't care really which one. He just wants a girlfriend. Right. Don't be that guy on LinkedIn. Don't be that guy on email. Right. In your sales thing. There's always got to be a certain reserve that says, hey, I'm here to help. I'm available. But if you don't want me, no harm, no foul. I'm off to the next thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. More good advice. Well, we'll, uh, we'll put your link in the show notes so somebody can just grab it and click on it. Yeah, no, that'd be great. That's awesome. Email is terrible for, to reach me. So I'm not, I don't do that. Good to know. All right. Well, Mark, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for joining us today. To get more sales and real estate tips, you can subscribe to our newsletter at hightechfreedom.com. You can also join our private Facebook and LinkedIn group that is exclusively for sales professionals. If you found a nugget of good information in the podcast, please subscribe, give us a positive rating and write a review. If there is a topic that you would like us to cover in the future, please send us a note through our website at hightechfreedom.com. Until next week, make this your best week ever.